you turn back to Genesis 39, where we left off last time, Genesis 39, we're looking at really an account in Scripture which gives us a glimpse of the big picture of the workings of God. And though the, the story revolves around the person of Joseph, we recognize that in this story, God was at work preserving the, pros the, the posterity of Israel, preserving the line of the Messiah. And the ups and downs that Joseph, Joseph went through were all part of that plan. And as we left off last time, we saw that Joseph had found in the middle of the calamity of life, some of the discouraging times of life, he found a measure of success and prosperity. He was promoted uh, in Potiphar's house. And yet, no, no sooner did that happen than did, than did opposition come from the destroyer, from Satan himself, who sought to derail Joseph. And he did it through a woman, through Potiphar, Potiphar's wife. We saw last time some examples on how to overcome temptation, how to resist evil when it presents itself. We saw that last time that Joseph didn't, uh, didn't linger. He immediately refused when the temptation came his way. He didn't linger on the decision. He's, we saw that he was guided by a biblical code of morality and integrity. He respected the, the integrity of marriage. He respected the trust that his boss, his master, had given him. And we also saw, we saw that he regarded that, that adultery as, as, as great wickedness before the Lord. He respected the holiness of God, and he had a desire to honor God. And lastly, we saw that he fled. He removed himself from the, from the possibility of temptation when he when he took off and ran. And yet maybe in the midst of all this, we saw the key to these things was the fact that the Lord is with Joseph. That underlying theme throughout his lifetime was the fact that the Lord was with him in the good and in the bad, in the ups and in the downs. And as Joseph recognized that and enjoyed that, he found the prosperity and success that God brought to his life. Well, as we come to the, to the next passage, we find that, that his life takes a U-turn. So let's pick it up in verse 11. We'll overlap a little bit here and then read on here through verse 21. It happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of the house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought... In into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came into me to mock me. So it happened as I lifted up my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now let's pause there. Now I would say Joseph's life took a sudden U-turn, wouldn't, wouldn't you think? He went from was maybe a measure of stability in his life, a little prominence in prison, to, to this undeserved imprisonment, this false accusation. From prominence to prison in these few short moments in his life. You might ask yourself, isn't that unfair? I mean, how unfair? How unreasonable? 
And a person at times like these might ask, where was God in all of this? Was this his reward for being faithful and resisting temptation and standing up for what is right? And that's a question we ask. It doesn't always have a clear answer when we face the trials of life, the challenges of life, the unwelcome circumstances of life. You could call it the mysteries of why. Why does God allow these things? Now, we're not talking about source. We recognize that, that sin has a source, and it's of the devil. And, and our flesh likes to entertain sin. But why does God allow these things? And yet, when we ask that question, we must recognize that we're, we're looking at the mysterious ways of God. One thing that this account shows us is that God works in a, in a, in a scenario of a bigger picture. But he always works for good. He's already proven his love for us at the cross. You and I know that God loves us unconditionally and beyond imagination because the Lord Jesus came, himself came, to be our Savior, to die for you and I, for God so loved the world. And yet Hebrews tell us he himself, he himself came to take your sin of mine upon himself. And he, he tells us when he was on the earth that it was for this cause he was born. That's why he came. He came to be our rescuer, our savior, our deliverer. And so God always works together for good. And Joseph wasn't there because God had forgotten or neglected him. This just wasn't, you know, God says, oops, sorry, I just, you know, I forgot to put up a wall of defense for you at this time. You know, sorry, buddy. He, instead, it tells us in verse 21 that the Lord was with Joseph in this. God was in this. And you'd be thinking, wow, is that bizarre? God allowed this in his life. And God was, Joseph wasn't there because God had forgotten him or was against him. Instead, God in his sovereignty was working out his master plan. And it's those times God asked us, just trust me. Just trust me. Because we don't see the big picture, but God does. And one thing we can recognize as we observe in the life of Joseph is that God's plan doesn't revolve around me by the way, or us, you, whatever. As much as we like to think that God's world revolves around our little cribby, as babies like to think, it doesn't. Life revolves around God. It's in Him we live and move and have our being. However, within that plan, we're still an important part of God's plan. But we are just a part. We're just a piece of that plan. We are important to God. And God is at, at work, isn't He, restoring all things to Himself. In fact, this very account of Joseph was about preserving the line of the Savior through whom God was going to restore all things, including you and I. Today, he's saving souls. He's building his church. He's reconciling people to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ who came through the, the family of Joseph. You see, you and I are just one piece of a larger plan of God for history. The plan he orchestrates in his sovereignty and his wisdom and in his power. And then and along the way, God uses us to accomplish those objectives. And we may not always understand. Joseph must have been saying, why, why, why me? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but I wouldn't blame him. Why, does it, why this sudden turn of, of, of direction? And yet, he's, we're reminded, and he, no doubt he seemed to be reminded, the Lord was with him. Because life revolves around our Creator and our Redeemer. Someone has said in regards to our lives that it's not all about me, but it is about me. And that kind of gives us the two sides of, of God's sovereignty and God's love, doesn't it? Because 
Life is about God and his plans and purposes and his glory. And yet it's all about us because God loved individuals. And he cares for us along the way. And that's what we see in Joseph's story in verse 21, where we ended off our reading, that God showed him mercy. The Lord was with Joseph and he showed him mercy. That, that, that could be interpreted compassion. You know, at times our paths traveled are rocky and difficult. But one thing we can learn from this story is that wherever we go, the Lord is with us. And he, and he cares for us along the way. He shows compassion and kindness in the, in the struggles he allows to come into our lives. And our struggles might be different than Joseph's, might have different purposes than Joseph, but God always has a purpose in it. And that's why Romans 8.28 tells us that wonderful trial promise that all things work together for good to those who love God. Because God is at work and we need to trust him at those times. You know, if we could understand the ways of God so that we could help him direct his paths, he wouldn't be God, would he not? And that's one thing Job learned in his trials, his unreasonable and, and, and seemingly ridiculous trials. One of the things he was teaching Joseph, I mean Job, for the sake of the rest of us as well, is that, you know, were you there when I created? Do you Basically, do you know the mind of God, the purposes of God, the plans of God? And God just asks us to trust him in those situations where we just don't understand. And here... God, God expresses his care for Joseph. It wasn't that he threw him to the wolves. God went with him into the trial, into the difficulty, into the challenge. And in verse 21, he says, he showed him mercy and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. He gave him favor. Once again, Joseph rises to prominence. In the situation he was in, look at verse 22 and 23. He says, and the keeper of the prison committed to, <coughs> committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So once again, he rises to prominence in the situation he was in. I mean, not a pleasant place to be in prison. Maybe not something you'd like to brag about, being the, you know, the, 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 the dorm resident authority in prison. But God prospered him. He gave him oversight of the prisoners. And his master had, had seen this once again. Could be, he said he gave it, he, verse 23 tells us he committed this responsibility to Joseph because the Lord was with him. And I think once again, even the keeper of the prison recognizes God in Joseph's life. Just like back in verse 3. When Joseph was promoted in Potiphar's house, his master saw what a wonderful thing when people can see Christ in us and, 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 and see the integrity that leads to success in the lives of believers. The key thing to recognize here as we study Joseph is, isn't necessarily that he was just one of those guys, you know, that everything he touches turns to gold. We see there's some people like that. No matter what they do, you know, things just prosper. Instead, we're told here that it's the Lord that made him prosper. So God prospered him. God gave him favor. God was with him. And that's why we must recognize that success is, is, is of the Lord for, for believers. It's, it's of the Lord. Why is it of the Lord? Because God's wisdom is wiser than men's, for one thing. Because God's power is greater than men's. 
Because God's ways are higher than men's, because God's standards are higher than men's. God's, God's ways are higher. And when man is left to himself, it always eventually results in ruin. And we can say that because the Bible teaches us that the nature of mankind's flesh is selfishness. It's a me-first mentality. Man always is, is seeking after self-promotion, gratification, self-promotion. Man's life is characterized by a lust for riches, power, and control. And while this formula sometimes brings to people a temporary reward and temporary success, eventually it crashes and burns, just like the world around us today. Life lived apart from the presence of God in their lives in respect to God's ways and God's wisdom and God's power always ends up in disaster, and our world is on the brink, isn't it, it seems, today. Because when we pursue that which gratifies self, living in a me-first world, people, generally, people usually get run over, misused and abused along the way. The only semblance of sanity that is found in this world is the result of the influence of God in people's lives. People don't recognize that. But Romans chapter 1 tells us about a consciousness that God has put in our hearts, that God has revealed himself to us in our, in our, in our, in our hearts. We call it a God consciousness. In chapter 2 of Romans, it talks about the conscience, that God has put his laws in our hearts. The reason our conscience convicts us, you know, of being guilty of something is because God has put it within us, uh, an awareness of right and wrong. And that's why the standards that, you know, that we respect as Christians are really in man's hearts, and you find a semblance of those standards throughout the world because God's put it in our hearts. And see, and that's the only thing that brings any kind of sanity to our lives. We went call it the Judeo-Christian ethic, which values life, it respects personal decency, it upholds personal integrity. Those are all things that come from God and his word. And those are the things that bring any kind of stability and sanity to life. And where those things are absent, life is chaos today because success is of the Lord. Even here in Joseph, in the worst of economic circumstances, without any apparent opportunity for promotion and success, no organizations rooting for him, promoting him, he found success in a small measure. And he finds it repeatedly in his life. And it's always stated it's because the Lord was with him. Because when we walk with the Lord, God will prosper our way. And Joseph considered the Lord in his life. Now, we see, we've seen here that it isn't always easy street. That doesn't mean life's going to be easy. That's the whole mysteries of why in our lives. God allows us to go through challenging things, whether it's to develop us or to, to work in other people's life or simply to use us as a key cog in his plan for history, God it works and he asks us to trust him, but he'll always sustain us and be with us through it all. And we can find rest in that because our rest is not dependent on circumstances, it's dependent on the presence and promises of God in our lives. And, and the ups and downs of Joseph's life continues. We've seen from the beginning that he was favored by his dad and therefore hated by his brothers. We saw that he had dreams that he was going to be be prominent, and he was hated more by his brothers. We see he was sold as a servant by his brothers. He was promoted in Potiphar's house, but now he was falsely accused and imprisoned. And then he finds promotion once again, and yet the roller coaster continues as we continue the study of his life. So let's turn to chapter 40 and read through here what comes next for him after he's promoted in prison. Where it says, It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt <coughs> offended their lord, the king of Egypt, 
And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them, so they were in custody for a while. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them. Each man's dream and one night, and each man dreamed with his own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We each have had a dream, and there's no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you. And please show kindness to me, make mention of me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. For indeed I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should have put me into this dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the um, interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in, in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head. And the upper, uppermost baskets were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaohs will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all of his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And what we see in this chapter in light of Joseph's experience was a glimmer of hope. He was stuck in this dungeon, falsely accused. No one seemed to care to take up his cause. And he, and he was lingering there. And we obviously, he desperately wanted his freedom. He, sa he, he says, get me out of this house, in verse 14. Uh, he, he wanted out of there. And, it, it, and just because lo Joseph knew the Lord was with him didn't mean he didn't want to change the circumstances. None of us like to be mired in trials, do we? We want them to come to pass, as the Bible says. And, he, and though we trust the Lord along the way, we look forward to their end. And Joseph was no different. And we're told in verse 4 that they had been there for some time. We don't know how long that was. They had been there for a while, in custody for a while. But then after these dreams, there was a glimmer of hope. Three days, and the butler is going to be back in the presence of Pharaoh, and maybe he'll mention him to him, how, what, what this Hebrew had told him about this, this, these circumstances. And maybe Pharaoh would, obviously a new Pharaoh, would take up his case and hear him and consider his case. But think of Joseph. Day after day, every time he heard someone approaching the dungeon, is this going to be an officer of the court? Are they going to hear my case? 
and day after day, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. In fact, it tells us in the next chapter that it was two years. Two years before anything did happen. Verse 1 of chapter 41. Two years. Two years. He, his hope he diminished more and more and more. Until he thought he was there forever. Every day, every week, waiting for release. God's a patient God. And he's able to sustain us in the worst of our trials for however long they last. In the meantime, he's at work. He's at work because he's, he's going to rescue Joseph. He has, a, he has a next step in his plan. Remember, the plan is not only for Joseph, but to preserve the nation of Israel and the line of the Messiah. And so he gives Pharaoh a dream. Now let's go ahead and turn to chapter 41. Verse 1, it says, And it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt, gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows, so Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise guys, the wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. It took him two years. But Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker. We each had a dream in one night. He and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened, he restored me to my office and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, came to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that you can interpret dreams to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river, Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. And when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning, so I woke. And I also saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then, behold... Seven heads, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, and there was none who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The, the dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout the land of Egypt. 
But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing was established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him rule over the land of Egypt, and so on. Well, finally, the butler remembers, didn't he? Two years, he had forgotten. And it's kind of an amazing thing that he, he had forgotten him, but he had forgotten. He was glad to be restored, no doubt, and not hanged along with, with the baker. And yet he remembers. And yet the fact that Pharaoh had a dream and the butler happened to be the one serving him was not an accident. This is orchestrated by God. The whole idea of the butler ending up in the prison the first time and the dreams and everything is just, you know, these just weren't happenstance. The butler kind of indicated that it so happened. He just think he thought it was circumstantial. But it wasn't, was it? This was the sovereign rendezvous of God. It's the same thing God brings in our lives. God is sovereign over what happens in our lives, whether it is, whether it is crossing paths with another believer so we can encourage one another, lift each other up, whether it's crossing paths with someone who is needy and needs help or someone who needs to hear the good news of salvation. Those rendezvous are of God because nothing is an accident when you have a sovereign God. And so when Joseph is brought in, and he's, you know, and, and he says, I hear you can interpret dreams. I love Joseph's answer, what he says in verse 16, it's not a me, it's God. What a great answer. What a great answer. You know, he didn't kind of puff out his chest and think, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of, a, I'm smarter than your magicians. He just recognized it was God. And as we mentioned earlier, he recognized success is of God. Wisdom is of God. He recognized the Lord's presence in his life and the source of success and accomplishment. And it is said so matter of fact. That's what's interesting about that statement. It wasn't like he cleared his throat and, and presented this big oratory of the, of the wisdom of God. He just said, it's just, it's from God. It's a matter of fact. And that's how we should regard the workings of God in our life. It's God that enables. It's God that empowers. You know, it indicates that we can expect God to work in our lives. Joseph fully expected God to give him the interpretation, to give wisdom. And we can expect God to do what he says he'll do. Now, he's going to do it in his way, in his time. But that's what faith is, knowing that God will keep his promises. God will do what he's committed to do, what he says he will do. And God is the ultimate example of trustworthiness, of faithfulness, and reliability. And as we come to know him and see that and understand it in our personal lives, we find rest, don't we? That's where we find peace, because we know our God is dependable. And so, interpretation was of God. And God does give wisdom, doesn't he? Now, God maybe isn't asking you and I to interpret dreams today. God has, has spoken through his word to us. He doesn't need dreams anymore. But he is asking us to understand life. That's what wisdom is. It's that practical use of knowledge and understanding that helps us to understand how life works. And the Bible gives us wisdom. He gives us, it gives us discernment. Back down to verse 39, we haven't gotten there yet, but it says this, Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. Now, Pharaoh thought it was Joseph, but Joseph had already given credit to the Lord. God gives wisdom and discernment and understanding of life. And according to 1 Corinthians 1, he gives it to the foolish. Now, the foolish represents maybe the un uneducated, those who consider certain people of the lower classes, but it really represents who are not dependent on their own wisdom, who think they're smart enough to figure life out apart from God. 
That's what the foolish are. They recognize that they need the wisdom of God. And that's what he gives it to, those who are teachable. As John 7, 17 says, if anyone wills to do, he'll know the doctrine. If you're willing to listen to God, he's delighted to teach. Kind of like, you know, as you've if you've raised kids to adulthood, there comes a certain time of their growth where they don't listen to anything you say. At least that's all it seems, isn't it? And when they do, for some reason, when they start to get older and realize they have some big decisions, they come and ask you for advice, you about fall off your chair. Because you haven't listened to me for the last five years. You're asking me now for advice? But if they're sincere, you're delighted to fill them in. In fact, that's why my kids don't ask, because I'll generally really fill them in. And that's what God is. He loves to give us the wisdom if we're really going to be receptive. And he does give wisdom to those who know they, they need his wisdom because Jeremiah 10.23 says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks and directs his own steps. That's just fact. And it should be pretty obvious that we need the wisdom of God to help us understand life. And that's why when we go through life, we begin to learn the Bible Things begin to make sense. The Bible begins to make sense. Eternity begins to make sense. Everything about God's history begins to make sense. Life begins to make sense. You understand why people do what they do, why people act like they act, and, and you begin to understand life because God gives that wisdom to discern. And it's available with James 1.5, that, that wonderful promise, if anybody lacks wisdom, and I do, let him ask. That's what God said, let him ask. And God gives liberally. And without reproach, it will be given to him. And so God gave Joseph the wisdom to interpret this dream. And once again, we find the rags to riches upside of Joseph's story. If we pick it up here in our story, in verse 34, in verse 33, Joseph recommended selecting a man Verse 34, let Pharaoh do this, let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the, of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food will be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Now that's a key word, that the land may not perish, but what God had in mind is that certain people wouldn't perish. He was preserving people. Joseph recognizes that in chapter 50. He says, God brought me through all this to save many people as alive as it is this day. So verse 37, the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God? No, there's no higher compliment, by the way, is there? For someone to recognize the wisdom of God, for being directed by the spirit of God. Well, no higher compliment. In fact, you have to kind of wonder what God was doing in the heart of Pharaoh. I mean, Joseph never intended on this journey to witness to Pharaoh about Jehovah, but he was. He was put in the presence of the king of the world, at least of that region, and sharing with him the reality of the living God. No doubt God was at work in the heart of Pharaoh as well, as you recognize that reality here. Verse 39, then jo Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. And so he set him over all the land of Egypt. Once again, from, from poverty to promotion, from rage to riches, because God had a plan. And God was with him in the good and in the bad. And all because Pharaoh recognized the presence of God in his life. And Joseph went from uh, the dungeon to prime minister. Number two dude, if you want to put it that way, the ruling, ruling in the world. Amazing. Only God could do that. Could he not? You know, when you study the life of Joseph, it really, when you met, think on these things, it brings an awe of the workings of God. So much so that when you really think about how God is at work carrying out both his big plan for the world, he's going to restore all things to himself, his working in individual lives to keep and preserve them, to save and deliver them, and you see God God's so personally at work here, you, you feel like you're standing on holy ground when you read these chapters. Because his story is saturated with the presence and power of our sovereign God. You see, Joseph's roller coaster ride was all part of God's plan. But Joseph found success by resting in the presence of God, trusting in the living God, and God prospered him. Now, your story might not be just like Joseph's. This is his story. This is his walk with God. This is his cog in the wheel of God's plan. But you and I may not, may not experience his hardships or his economic and personal success. But we can experience his spiritual success. We can see our faith grown. We can find the rest he had in whatever trials come our way, whatever curveballs are thrown at us. We can learn to trust and rest in our God. And that's what's important about this story as well. You see, Joseph here not only was preserving many people as line of the Messiah, but we even see fulfilled prophecy. Because remember Joseph's original dreams? That he was going to rule over his family? It came to pass. What do you know? God's word actually comes to pass. And Joseph enjoyed the benefits of that as he rested in power and sovereignty of his God. And that's what's important. Is that your, your faith and mine are, are, is developed. That's what God is doing in our lives. He's seeking to develop our faith. And his, whatever comes our life is from a loving Father. You know, so, some of us, as we grew up, some of us had easier lives and some of us had harder lives. Some, of, some fathers are taskmasters, but you know, sometimes a father, when he raises his son's intent is to make life a little rugged, to toughen up the boy, so to speak. There's an intent for that ruggedness. And that might be a small picture of what God does in our lives, to teach us to trust him, to put in a situation where we can see he's at work. And we may not always see the end of the story. In fact, I'm personally convinced that J Joseph wasn't thinking in terms of preserving the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw that he saved many people alive. He saw that much of a purpose for his trials. But the purpose was so much bigger than that because we have so much bigger a God than what you and I can see with our own two eyes. And that's why we trust him. And when we do, we can have an effect on so many people 
because life is so much bigger than us. It goes beyond us. Look at how many people Joseph affected. He's a witness in Potiphar's house. He's saving many people alive. You know, someone has said that one person can have a direct or indirect effect on up to a million people in the course of his life. I've never done the math. I don't know if that's true, but I could see that being true. Through your growing up years, through your work life, your school life, your family life, your, your social life, your sports life, your business life, and all the tentacles that reach out from there. That's a lot of people. The qu- we have to ask ourselves, which way are we encouraging them? You see, we do have a critical place in the workings of God. And Joseph's effect of Joseph's life goes well beyond his own comfort zone. It affects so many people. And so God wants to develop our faith so that people see Jesus in us like they saw the presence of God in Joseph. It all begins when we simply learn to trust him. And sometimes it starts with a little irritations in life, doesn't it? I mean, we sometimes don't get steamrolled by imprisonment because we can't, we can't, you know, we can't handle it when the faucet's leaking. And we go ballistic and bananas. It starts with little things. Because God cares for every detail of our lives. And when we do trust him, we find him faithful. We see his love. We see his power and his sovereignty. And we find out that he's with us. He's with us in the little and the big things, with the ups and the downs. And as we trust him, we can be used to work alongside of him to accomplish his purposes in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing account, Father, that you've set before us, no doubt to teach us of your, your um, sovereign plan, Father, the, the, the essence of life as you take this world that has departed from you uh, and rebelled against you in sin and in selfishness, Father, and how you are working so patiently throughout history to bring it back around to a right relationship with you, to a right standing with you. And Father, you're doing that often one life at a time. And Father, we're so thankful that you have that plan and that we can trust you. Father, whether you allow good or, 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 or evil in our lives, Father, we can trust you because you care for us. You've proven that love unto us. So Father, instruct us in the things we've read today. Encourage us. And may you continue to develop our faith, each of our faith, as we learn to trust a loving and caring God in everyday life. And we give you the thanks and praise in Jesus' name.